If you would take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Mark chapter 1. This morning is going to be a little bit of overlap from Pastor Thomas's last sermon. Uh, as we move on in this wonderful book of Mark, this very I don't know the right word, staccato, just as we move through this book, Mark, as he writes, it's just boom, 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 boom. It just goes on and on and, and just right to the next thing, right to the next thing. But verses 14 and 15 are basically the start of Jesus' public ministry, at least in Galilee. And basically, as Pastor Thomas told us, what, what are in those two verses basically sum up what's taking place in the rest of the book and the rest of, of Mark's gospel account. What we see here is Jesus asserting his kingly authority, even though he doesn't come riding on a war horse, he doesn't come as a conquering hero, he's still the king. And he asserts his authority by commanding people to repent and believe. And then we will see that authority as we move through this book. Let's read then verses 14 through 20. This is the word of the living God. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, God of all the universe, loving Father, just as you sent your Son, Father, we ask now that you send your Spirit, that you would send him forth with your Word, and that your Word would accomplish all that you have planned for it, and that it would go forth in power. And Father, that upon hearing your word, we would all be eternally changed. Would you use this for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our edification? And Father, would you use this for your glory? I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in his gospel account, Mark very quickly yet succinctly introduces Jesus by way of John the Baptizer. He records for us Jesus' preparation for his earthly ministry through his baptism and his subsequent wilderness temptations. Now Mark doesn't give us a lot of details about what took place in the wilderness as the other gospel writers do. But 
Mark wrote this assuming that his readers would know Jesus was victorious in the wilderness. Mark doesn't even pick up the life of Christ immediately following the wilderness ordeal, but rather picks up the events after John the baptizer is arrested. This fulfills John the baptizer's prophecy when he says that he must become less so that Jesus can become more. In other words, John is removed from the picture so that the entire focus now is on Christ the Messiah. It is my hope and prayer that we will all have a life-altering encounter with King Jesus today. I pray that we will see from this passage that Jesus is indeed King and Savior, that we will all be given penitent hearts and minds, and that our faith will grow exponentially. Our sovereign King willing, we will consider Christ's message, Christ's authority, and the required response of those who encounter Jesus. And so first we're going to look at the message and its required response. What is the gospel or the good news of God? Now, here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, I know every one of you can very well articulate that, right? Because you hear it often. What is the gospel or the good news of God? What was Jesus preaching? Well, it wasn't some mushy, feel-good, I-want-you-to-be-proud-of-yourself sermon. No, it wasn't. First, he was preaching the the fulfilled time or the fullness of time. That's the first part of his gospel message. The Greek word translated here as time as kairos as opposed to chronos. R.C. Sprawl explains the difference between these two words. He writes, We do not have corresponding distinctions in the English language for chronos and kairos. The closest English words are these, historical and historic. Everything that takes place in space and time is historical, but not everything is historic. We reserve the word historic for events of great significance. For something to be considered historic, it has to be so important, so momentous, that it shapes history, end quote. The word in this passage, is kairos, not chronos. There have been many historic events on this planet, have there not? The flood, the exodus, the rise and fall of great empires, wars, natural disasters and the like. All these are historical events. And some are set apart as historic Remember, well, I'm not going to ask you if you remember. Probably nobody here was there to remember uh, FDR's uh, words uh, when the Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. He said, this day will live on in infamy. It was an historic event. It changed the course of our nation, did it not? A lot of you may remember 9-11, 
Not everyone. But a lot of you may remember 9-11. That was an historic event. It changed the course of our nation. But you see, the good news or gospel of God is that this particular historical event, namely the incarnation of Christ, was not just another event in history. It was the event in history. It was the most important historic event in the universe. Here, what the Apostle John describes it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That sets the tone for what he's going to say. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Did you hear what John said happened? The Word was God. God became flesh and dwelt among us. There's no other event in the history of this world more important than that. Because without that event, we don't have the cross, we don't have the resurrection. This event took place in space and time some 2,000 years ago. It's a historical fact. But it is the most historic, world-changing, life-changing event in history. Second, the good news of God is that the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because the king is here. Now I realize this is an already and not yet argument. The king came and the kingdom is here. And the kingdom will be consummated at the second coming of Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, God had been giving progressively revealing promises about the seed of the woman. That was first promises in Genesis chapter 3. This promised seed through the lineage of Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. This promised seed through the lineage of David would forever be seated on David's throne. But this seed would be more than just a king. He would be Yahweh's suffering servant. Through the prophet Isaiah, his mission was further revealed. The prophet writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And so the king was coming to inaugurate his reign. But it was not to be a physical battle. It was not by physical might. He wasn't coming to conquer Rome so that the Jews could be in charge again. They could have their own nation again. No, this was a spiritual battle. He had come to bind the strong man. Which he did, I believe, and you may have a different opinion. I believe he he bound the strong man in the wilderness 
when he defeated him. He was now advancing his kingdom by doing what? By pilfering the strong man's goods. How did he do this? By preaching the gospel of God and calling sinners to repentance and faith. And he is still doing so today through his church. He came not as a conquering war hero, but as a faithful, humble servant seeking to save the lost. Jesus said there are only two acceptable responses to the gospel. You don't get to choose how you will interact with Jesus. You don't get to have an opinion about how you should respond to the gospel. Just like we believe in the regulative principle of worship, God commands how he will be worshipped. God commands how you will respond to the gospel. And those two ways are repentance and faith. So why is this so important? I mean, why can't we respond any way we want? Once again, Sprawl explains. I want you to listen very carefully. It's a rather lengthy quote, but I want you to listen to it. The moment when the king came was a moment of profound crisis. The English word for crisis is a transliteration of the Greek word krisis, which means judgment. When the kingdom broke through and the Messiah appeared, it brought the most profound crisis humanity had ever faced. That crisis was this. Those who received him would receive eternal life. Those who did not would pass into God's judgment. Jesus was saying to the Jews, Your crisis is right now. He says the same to everyone in the world today who hears his name. No one can hear the gospel and walk away indifferent. Jesus was saying, in essence, you are not ready for the kingdom. Therefore, repent and believe. Those two actions are absolutely necessary to receive the Savior. End quote. As creator, remember we heard that, what John said, the in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on to say that nothing was made that wasn't made by Him. As Creator, now I know there's a two-kingdom concept, so I'm not going to try to muddle those here. But, but as Creator, Jesus is King of all the universe. And He's your King, whether you believe it or not. Whether you acknowledge that or not, as your creator, you owe him all obedience. And what does your king command? Two responses to the gospel. Jesus commands that you repent and that you believe. Those aren't invitations, dear ones. Those aren't suggestions. Those are command commands from the king of the universe but they're also commands from a loving king to his people you see what does it mean i was thinking about this the other day that, you know we, we're, we're told that the bible is, is, is sharp and it's like a two-edged sword 
What, what, what does that mean? What, what does that really mean? And, and I had this floating around my head, and if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. But the, the gospel can either pierce to the heart of God's people or cut off the head of the wicked. The gospel either saves or it condemns. You either respond the way God tells you to respond or you perish. So, just in case you don't understand what these two words mean, I'm going to tell you what repentance and faith looks like. What is repentance? Well, a lot of people think it's confessing your sins. And surely that's part of it. Absolutely. If we confess our sins, God is faithful, and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will be forgiven. Yes, confession is part of repentance, but that's only just a part of repentance. You see, repentance is a complete turning around, a complete change of mind, a complete change of heart, a complete change of life. If you are saved, if you are regenerated by the Spirit of the living God, your life will be different. You can't live the same life and and, and claim to be regenerate. Your life must be different. You cannot be like the world around you. You cannot be like the society around you. There must be change or there's no repentance. When Christ commands us to repent, he means for us to forsake our own efforts to enter the kingdom We can't get in by ourselves. We can't force our way in. We can't sneak our way in. We can't jump over the wall and get into the way. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? Met several fellows that came over the wall. And they said, we don't have to go through the gate. (laughs) What happened to them? They perished. He means for us to turn from our sinful ways and turn to Him for forgiveness, who is the only sure Savior. Jesus is the only way. And repentance means turning away from our sin and turning to Christ. It's it's that simple. And yet it's that hard. As Peter said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so we must repent. But we must also have faith. Repentance by itself is, is, is nothing. You can turn over a new leaf, but it's still the same leaf. You can flip the coin, but it's still the same coin. You must be a new creature. In Christ. You must have faith. What is faith? Faith is completely trusting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. I've heard it said like this. Faith is willing to stare into eternity and say, If Christ can't save me, then I will spend eternity in hell. 
If Christ won't save me, I will spend eternity in hell. Because there's no one else that can save me. Christ is it. I believe that. That Christ. Now, we have to be careful that we don't develop faith in our faith. That, that's dangerous, okay? You're, you're, you don't develop faith in your faith. Well, I have good faith. No, no. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Completely trusting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. It is trusting Christ to save you. It means looking only to Him for salvation. It is trusting the promises of God's Word, believing that Jesus, as your federal head, really and truly lived the life that you are supposed to but fail. It is believing that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitutionary death as He died in your place. It means believing that God raised him from the dead three days later. And it means that believing that Christ is seated at the right hand of glory and he will return for his bride. That is saving faith. Faith in Christ. There is nothing, dear ones, in the entire universe, nothing in the entire universe more important than for you to respond properly to the gospel. To respond properly to your king. It is not just a matter of life or death. Rather it is a matter of eternal life. Or eternal death. If you fail to respond properly. The king will cast you away from his favorable presence. In a place called hell. And that will be for all eternity. Now I know a lot of people don't like hell and brimfire preaching. But hell is just as much a reality as heaven is. And it doesn't go away because you don't like it. And it doesn't go away if you don't believe it. I've said this before and I'll probably say it many times before I die. Your opinion doesn't matter a lick to God. Your opinion does not change God's reality. Whether you believe or not does not change God's reality. God laughs, he scoffs at unbelievers. We're told several times in the Psalms, right? No. What that means is God's in control. Your opinion doesn't change God. It doesn't change God's reality. And the reality is this, dear ones. If you are not in Christ, if you depart this life not in Christ... As Pastor Tyler preached several weeks ago, you'll die twice. If you're not in Christ, you're born once, but you'll die twice. But if you're in Christ, you're born twice, but you'll only die once. You see how that works? That's reality. That's God's reality. And the way to avoid that is to repent and believe as Jesus commands. Next, in our passage, we see Jesus calling his first disciples. But it's a little bit more than that. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. This was not 
Jesus' first encounter with these men. As we, as we, were, as we learned when Pastor Thomas was preaching, there's a gap between the wilderness temptations and, and this passage here. And we know that John fills in that gap, you know, the, the wedding in Cana, you know, that, that, the area in John chapter 1 where Jesus is pointed out to the disciples by John the baptizer. <clears throat> the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. So we know that Jesus had met Andrew and Peter. And we, we assume, we surmise that the other disciple that wasn't named, of course, was John. Okay, And if we go down through there, we see that Nathaniel was brought there and and. and and whatnot. So Jesus had met these guys before. And so when he met them before, he really didn't issue the call to follow him, right? He did say when they asked him a question, where are you staying? He said, well, come and see, right? That, that wasn't the same as his call in this passage. Now, we don't know why. Maybe because he didn't specifically call them. Maybe that's why they didn't stay with him. Um, but for whatever reason... They are not with him. They are uh, the, living out their professions. They're fishermen. They're, they're, they're working. <clears throat> but we know that Mark, what Mark is going to show us here is that their commitment level is drastically going to change. It's going to be completely different from John chapter 1 to Mark chapter 1 when Jesus issues this call. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And, you know, I think in our day, we, we, we like to have a, a tame Jesus. You know, uh, hey guys, c- come over here for a minute. L- let me talk to you. I don't get the sense of that from this scripture. Jesus simply says, follow me. That doesn't sound like an invitation to me. That sounds like a king commanding his subjects. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Two simple words, and yet so profound. This simple command meant for these men that they must leave their previous way of life and become totally committed to following Jesus. The command is no different today. Are you a follower of Christ? He wasn't just calling these men that he was going to form into apostles. No, he calls everyone like that. All of his people, follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. Our, uh, Sinclair Ferguson explains, in principle, the challenge is exactly the same for us. It may not necessarily involve such a dramatic change in our everyday occupations, although that is by no means infrequent. 
But Christ's call and his kingly reign over our lives does mean that from then on, they are no longer at our own disposal. End quote. That means if you're a Christian, you're to be totally, 100% committed to Christ 100% of the time. You need to be willing to forsake everything for Christ. What would it gain a man if he gained the whole world? What would it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What is more important than following Christ? My answer would be nothing. Not, not money, not wealth, not, not prestige, not social status. Not possessions. Nothing. Nothing. It is interesting that Jesus stays with the theme of fishing, something these men would understand. But the fishing Jesus spoke of, of course, is not fishing for food. But he's telling these men that they would be calling others to do what? Repent and believe. That's the gospel. That's the gospel Christ preached, and that's the gospel that that he taught his disciples to preach. And that's the gospel the apostles preached through Scripture. That's the gospel that the church has preached ever since then. Follow me, and I will teach you how to call sinners to repentance and faith. That's what Christ is saying. I will make you fishers of men. Calling the lost to faith in Messiah. That's what Jesus is saying by that he will make them fishers of men. And dear ones, we all have that responsibility. If we are truly followers of Christ, we are to be fishers of men and women and boys and girls. We are to share the gospel Every opportunity, and especially pastors, we must diligently and faithfully proclaim the gospel, calling sinners to repentance and faith. That's how the kingdom is expanded. That's how the kingdom grows. That's how Christ builds his church through the gospel. Notice Christ's authority there. He issues a simple command with a brief explanation. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. With authority, he issues this command. And we see by Mark's description that the disciples recognized his authority. There were no questions asked. Mark tells us, of Andrew and his brother Simon, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. Likewise of James and his brother John. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father. And they followed him. Now, 
We could go on and, and, and talk about the, the lucrative business that this fishing was. It, it, it was a pretty lucrative business. I mean, even if they could, you know they made money if they, they could afford hired help, right? But that's not the point. The point is not their call. The point is not their response. The point is the one who issued the call and the one to whom they responded, the king. Follow me. And immediately they did so. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, Mark Strauss writes, While Mark's characteristic immediately often serves as a transitional word without temporal significance, here it certainly means at once. The disciples drop what they are doing and follow him. If Mark is aware of any previous encounters between Jesus and the disciples, he shows no interest in them. For him, the important point is the authority of Jesus' words and the immediate response of the disciples. The kingdom of God is an urgent call and demands an absolute response. End quote. And so we see the authority of King Jesus, not only in his commands to the lost to repent and believe, but as he commands his people, follow me. And the response is immediate and complete and total. Dear ones, obedience to our king is not optional. You know, this, this, this heresy that's around that you can have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. What kind of garbage is that? If Jesus is not your Lord, I promise you he's not your Savior. Because he calls his people to follow him. And if you're truly born again, the response is immediate and complete. Now, do we perfectly follow him? No. No, we're still sinful creatures. Praise God for grace. Praise God for his grace. By the grace that he gives us, we follow him the best that we can. And hope that our feeble efforts bring him glory. Our response to Jesus needs to be decisive and immediate. We need to commit to him 100%, 100% of the time. But Jesus is, is, is not just here now calling people to be his disciples. That, that's not the full context of what's taking place here. He's doing something much more. What is it, you might ask? Well, I think the Apostle Paul will later explain the significance of this when he writes to the church in Ephesus. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see what Jesus is doing by calling those disciples? He's laying the foundation. He's laying the foundation. He's building the church. Now the foundation started, we're called the prophets, right? I would say the Old Testament prophets are part of that foundation. 
And then the apostles are part of that foundation. But Jesus now, as the cornerstone, can perfectly lay that foundation. And he's doing so in this passage. He's, he's, he's continuing to build his church. <clears throat> Jesus, then, is not just the king. He's not just the teacher. He's the master architect. He's the master builder. And he's masterfully building his church. And dear ones, you and I are part of that. We are built on that foundation. If you are a member of God's church, a true believer, you are a a building stone that's been put into this temple of the living God. It's what Peter describes as a building not made with hands. A temple to the living God. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about Messiah being the cornerstone, right? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. The New Testament writers explain who this cornerstone is. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11, we read, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2, writes, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and now he quotes, That passage from Isaiah. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 6. Jesus wasn't just gathering for himself a small band of disciples. He wasn't just gathering a small group of men that he could teach. He was building his church. And of course, he was grooming these small bands of men to be apostles, to be part of that foundation that the church is built on. Well, a quick summary, and then I'll give an exhortation, and then we'll close. We have seen clearly, I hope, in our passage today, the kingly authority of Jesus. You know... We don't often think like that, do we? Because we always say that he he didn't come as the conquering hero. He came as a suffering servant. And that's true. But even in that role as a suffering servant, Jesus was king. And he exercised his authority. And that will be apparent as we go throughout the book of Mark. He casts out demons. He he heals the sick. He raises the dead. That's authority. And in our very next passage, we're going to see that. At the start of his Galilean ministry, he preached the gospel and he called sinners to repentance and faith. He also started building his New Testament church by laying the foundation. He still calls disciples today. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are a disciple. The calling is one and the same. We need to hear his command to repent and believe. And we need to obediently follow him as disciples. 
as we are being built up into the household of faith, we need to be faithful fishers of men. We too must call sinners to repent of their sins and put their faith in the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Lord Jesus. As the scriptures unashamedly declare, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the same scriptures also say, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Flee to Christ without delay. Why would you perish? Flee to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Holy Father, we have been given the command from the King of glory that we cannot obey unless you make it possible. Unless you move on our hearts, Father. And so we ask, we beg that you would do so on every heart here today. That you would tear out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that we may respond properly to your, to your Son, to our King. Father, would you do this because of your great love for Christ and for your great love for your people and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd stand and we'll sing together um, hymn number 343, 343.